Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we can talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going to the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, he is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, good morning. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Thanks for having a couple minutes today. Always great to have you guys aboard. And a ton of stuff to get into in regards to Major League Baseball. I'm actually going to start out today by going over a couple of my latest blog posts. And you know, I was writing a little bit, and of course, if you listened to this program last week, and if you listened over the last couple of years, you know I get into my team previews. The 30-1 to 1 MLB countdown, basically starting with the worst team, I think, for Major League Baseball in 2014. And I worked my way up to what I think the best team is going to be. And it's a fun voyage. We get into some heated debates. Uh, some people really think that I'm off my rocker when I pick some teams. And you, you set up, you're feel free to set up in your own, your own 30-1 to 1 countdown, your own division winners. And, you know, I picked my final four like I do every year and the teams that I think are going to uh, represent the respective leagues in there in the championship series and get to the World Series and stuff like that. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy that. But I do want to get into conventional things. I'm going to be joined this hour by former Major League first baseman and, of course, longtime New York Med, Ed Cranepool. And, and Ed, of course, the owner of the 18 seasons in the Major Leagues with the New York Mets, spent his entire career with the Mets, still holds the all-time record for most at-bats, most games played, most sacrifice flies. And you know, here's a guy that probably could have played a couple more years in the Major Leagues and you know wasn't used right really near the end of his career, certainly had a lot left to offer. But you know definitely looking forward to getting into some stuff with Ed. But a couple things that I want to start out talking about, and one has general manager of the New York Mets, Sandy Alderson, making a bold statement, but not saying it publicly, not saying it to the media, not saying it to the other people uh, that, that are supposed to hear it, but said this to his own organization and Fred Wilpon and Jeff Wilpon and Saul Katz and the guys that run the New York Mets organization are probably want to know what the outlook should be this year in regards to the money that Sandy Alderson has spent. And, of course, if you followed the Mets over the last couple of seasons, you know that Alderson has not really spent a lot of money. It's been more about allowing the payroll that was so high that was up in the $130, $140 million payroll range down to where it's been now. And, of course, Jason Bay and Johan Santana, the big contracts that they had, finally coming off the books. And you know about some of the other contracts that have come off the books in recent years. 
But this was the first year under Sandy Alderson, and the Mets spent some in a positive direction. And you saw, like I said, the amount of money that's come off over the last couple of years. They invested in a four-year, $60 million contract to Curtis Granderson. They invested it two years and $20 million with Bartolo Colon, one year, $7.25 million for Chris Young. And, uh, of course, he put that with the combination of the younger players that are coming in. And I think the Mets' ownership, I think, reasonably wanted to know from Sandy Alderson what to expect and what really can happen this season. What's the goals for the Mets' season and where they should finish? Sandy Alderson, of course, says that he expects the team to win 90 games this year. And obviously, that's a little bit of a of a stretch. I think it's a big statement to make for a team that just won 74 games in the previous season. And I'm sure, ideally, the Mets would like to win that many games. I don't think you know David Wright or anybody on the Mets is surprised with the expectation. May may seem like a big jump to go from 74 to 90 wins in one season. It doesn't happen really too often. But listen, I think it's good to have that type of mentality. And I've had the chance to talk to a couple people that that agree with that statement. That you don't want to go in there and say you're going to suck every year. Uh, You don't want to say that, hey, listen, you think your team is terrible because the Mets have gone out there and consciously made good decisions to try to make their team better. I don't think they're worse than they were in 2013. I think maybe they're in in a stage where they're about as good of a team that they had going into 2011. The unfortunate thing about the team in 2011 is you had – you know, some players that were hurt. Carlos Beltran was coming off of an injury that hurt his 2010 season. And, you know, the way he came back from that ended up uh, being a factor going into 2011. He ended up playing well. Francisco Rodriguez was a guy that was a good closer. The Mets ended up trading him, though. Jose Reyes, you know about where he was and what turned out to be his last season with the New York Mets. But the Mets going into 2014 have some positive things. And you think of Curtis Granderson, you think of what Chris Young can do. And and actually, let's be honest, looking at Chris Young, he looks okay. He looks like a guy that could be a legitimate Major League player. He could be a regular outfielder for the Mets. But the problem with this team going out there and winning 90 games, and I think it's a, I think it's a, a goal and I think it's set up there by Sandy Alderson to probably be carried through with Terry Collins, the manager, and on to the players led by David Wright, the captain. I think based on the development of what's happened here, you hope that somebody doesn't have to pay for this team not winning 90 games this year. And that obviously goes on to Terry Collins, the manager, and you wonder... Sandy Alderson going out there obviously is trying to protect his own job. He's trying to say, listen, I'm running an organization here. It is about results, and you can't go on this you know, five- to ten-year plan and continue to get yourself to a point where you're spitting out season after season of mediocrity and underachieving. And I don't think the Mets have underachieved. I really don't. I think they, they're a product of the type of team that they have. Uh, they have a young team that they're looking to get themselves better. They have a very good farm system that's improving by the year, and you know about the pitchers. You know about uh, a lot of the young young arms that the Mets have put through their system and the ones that still have to make it to the major league level. But you know, you're looking at an organization that's building things in the right direction. But the question is, how long is it going to take? And you remember, for those of us that are old enough to remember, and I do just because I was here in years. I wasn't around to consume what was going on and remember it firsthand. But Frank Cashin took over the New York Mets organization as a general manager after the 1980 season. Now, to parallel, you got 30 years later, and you got Sandy Alderson getting the same type of opportunity with the New York Mets organization. Remember, uh, Fred Wilpon, Nelson Doubleday had just bought the team in the 79 going into 1980 and they end up and I've talked before about the 30-year parallel that you talk about how this team was in such dire straits like in the late 1970s and let's be honest 
the Mets as bad as they were going under the end of the Omar Minaya regime were not anywhere near the same league as the Mets were at the end of the 1970s going into the 1980s. Let's be honest, this organization was in in a situation where it couldn't be any worse. They literally traded every good player that they had that wore a New York Mets uniform and got rid of them. And they weren't really looking for a, for a top type of return. They were looking for just names and younger players. And as you look at all these years later, and you see the fact that they were able to build within a couple of years and gradually get some draft picks and some guys like Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry who were up with the major leagues in 83 going into 84. And you saw what ended up happening with Dwight Gooden, the, the, you know, his 1984 season and how the Mets became this this you know young team with veteran players that ended up coming in and you say after all these years later how is it going to mix how is it going to get to a point where maybe they could have themselves a 1986 in 2015 or 2016 and and you wonder how long it takes to develop let's be honest the Mets have young talent they've had it for the last couple seasons so to expect it to be exactly 30 years later for the Mets to get themselves back out of mediocrity to contention in 2014 and 2015 have that season that maybe they go all in and they run a little bit short. And 2016 is the year, 30 years later, after winning a World Series in 1986, they go out there and they can do it again. I actually understand why there should be some expectations on this team right now, but they have to have the right resources out there. You look at the amount of holes that exist on this team. You don't know where they're going to go for first base. I think they want Lucas Duda to win the job. Mike Davis being hurt is going to give Duda a little bit of an upper hand early. Ruben Tejada is essentially given the job at shortstop. As much as I'd like to see Wilmer Flores get a legitimate chance to be a major league shortstop, I think he's going to get a shot. But let's be honest, I don't think Wilmer Flores is going to be able to play good enough defensively to be a, the starting shortstop for the New York Mets, especially how far he's been adrift. I mean, he has not been necessarily taking ground balls at shortstop over the last several seasons. He's not necessarily played the position as much. The last couple of years, he's gone out there as a third baseman, a little bit at second base. But, you know, they moved him off the position for a reason. Now, because the Mets don't have a shortstop, because the Mets will like to do anything they possibly can other than actually go out of the organization and get themselves a new shortstop, uh, they're, they're tired of Ruben Tejada. They, 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 you know, he's hurt right now. Are they really going to go into the season if Ruben Tejada, let's say for some reason, is out for an extended period of time? Are you going to go out there and play Omar Quintanilla, uh, you know, 140 games at shortstop? I mean, there comes a point where you've got to make it a, a decision over what you're going to do. And, and maybe, maybe the decision is to go out there and make a bold move for a shortstop. And I'm not talking Stephen Drew. I'm not talking, uh, you know, going out there and making a trade for a Nick Franklin. Maybe you go out there and you make that bold type of move because you realize you need a shortstop. Uh, I'm not going to go back to Keith Hernandez in 1983, but I'm going to go back to, let's say, Mike Piazza of 1998. But, you know, let's take a second to go back there and realize the Mets situation for their catcher at that time. Remember, this is an organization that was stumbling for a couple years. They had some positive things going. There were some good players that were coming up through, and you thought the team had a chance to kind of start to turn the corner. It didn't happen really until 1998, 1999. But one of the big turning points was the trade that the Mets made in 1998 to get Mike Piazza as their catcher. They had a catcher in Todd Hundley, but he was hurt. 
He was out for a good part of the 1998 season. You knew eventually he was going to come back. But the Mets saw, like the rest of Major League Baseball, what the Florida Marlins were doing after they won the World Series championship in 1997. They said, hey, we got our World Series championship. We don't care about the organization anymore. Let's get rid of everybody. And they started doing that. They obviously made the deal with the Dodgers that sent Gary Sheffield and and company with Charles Johnson and some other guys over to the Dodgers and got Mike Piazza back. And he knew that Piazza was not long for Miami. He was not going to be in that area for a long time. They were looking to flip him to another team. And the Mets realized that this was a chance. Let's say make a bold move for the betterment of your organization and bring in a star player like Mike Piazza. And you know they did that in 1983 when Frank Cash had made a deal with the St. Louis Cardinals and they got themselves uh, Keith Hernandez for Rick Ownby and Neil Allen. Now the Mets may have a situation where they could do that and get that huge impact type of player. Who is it? Is it a shortstop? If it is, uh, you know, is it a guy like Troy Tulowitzki? Obviously it's going to cost you a lot. You're going to have to trade some of your pitching. But maybe a guy that isn't up at the level of a Tulowitzki. Maybe you go out there and you make an aggressive deal for a Gene Segura, like I suggested, with the Milwaukee Brewers. Um, you know, a guy like even like a Brandon Crawford might be a little bit of an upgrade over Ruben Tejada, though I don't think Crawford is the type of player that's going to be an impact type of guy. But Hanley Ramirez is out there. You know about his negotiation with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Odds are they may have the ability to go out there and keep him long term. But can you make a trade for Hanley Ramirez? Nobody really talks about that because they know the Dodgers are probably going to give him an extension for 20 plus million over a serious amount of time. But I think it's something that's very interesting to look at. Can the Mets go out there and on the fringe of the 2014 season make themselves an aggressive move, one that you could put up there with the the Piazza trade and the Keith Hernandez trade and even the Gary Carter trade of 1985 or 1984 going into 1985? Because you know that was an aggressive move, and obviously it was one that led the team to have some success in the near future and, of course, their, their World Series championship in 1986. But listen, to go out there, and I back to my original point about 90 wins with the New York Mets and how crazy it might be, uh, listen, maybe there's something under Sandy Alderson's mind. Maybe there's something that he's thinking about, a move that he can make that could put themselves into this position because obviously they have too many holes right now. But I did make a hypothetical. I said, listen, if if the Mets were going to go out there and shock the world and win 90 games, which I think it absolutely will be, the Daily News, of course, was the one that made their report saying that Alderson said to ownership and, you know, that fact that they were going to go out there and they should win. This is a 90-win team. Fred Wilpon, obviously, you know, the senile old man that he is right now, uh, says, yeah, they better. And obviously this is a guy that probably couldn't have much less of a clue of what is actually going on in the organization uh, I mean, you're looking at a team that's not spending any money. You've got a team that's wasting year after year. Yes, it may be turning for the better right now, but this is not a 91 team. But here's what would have to happen in my hypothetical situation that I said for the Mets to win 90 games. Uh, Numbers-wise, you know, the guy like David Wright has to be David Wright. And I'm talking 320, 25 homers, 115 RBI David Wright. Daniel Murphy, 315, 18, and 100. And we're talking about guys that are playing in 155 and 160 games, respectively. Wright scoring 110 runs. Daniel Murphy scoring 99 runs. How about rookie catcher Travis Darno? Uh, a 300 hitter. 22 homers, 80 RBIs in 130 games. Josh Satin coming off the bench. Hitting 15 homers and driving in 50 runs. Hitting 300. Juan Lagares is a starting center fielder. 280. Five homers, 52 RBIs in 145 games. 
Ruben Tejada. I'm not a big fan of Ruben Tejada, but he has to go out there and he has to hit 270. Uh, you know, play 145 games. Anthony Saratelli. He's going to be coming off the bench this year, a guy that the Mets brought in from the Royals organization, a sought-after minor league veteran who has never played in the major leagues, needs to go out there and hit 270, hit eight homers, drive in 38 runs. Curtis Granderson needs to hit 30 home runs. Chris Young needs to hit 30 home runs. Eric Young needs to hit about 260. Ike needs to hit about 250 with 40 home runs, drive in 100 runs. Lucas Duda, if he's on the same team, needs to hit 250, needs to hit 20 home runs and drive in 60 runs. And Anthony Record, a last bench spot, 250-12-30. And, and as I said, listen, you, you know, I didn't count Wilmer Flores on the team because I had to go with a, a legitimate five-man bench. I didn't make any trades because I can't predict what kind of trades are going to be made. That's why I kind of prefaced that in the beginning part of my argument. But, uh, you know, the fact that you could substitute Wilmer Flores for maybe a Duda or maybe a Davis or – you know, you want to say one of those guys will be around and one of, guys, one of those guys won't. The bottom line is the Mets have to hit for a lot more power in their lineup than they did last year. And they haven't, they haven't shown that they have the ability to do that. They have guys, they have players that are capable of hitting 30 home runs. I got three guys hitting 30 home runs for the Mets and Young, Granderson, and Ike Davis. And then you got two more guys hitting over 20 in Darnell and David Wright. I think the Mets are going to have to replace a certain amount of that offense, and you're going to need to see about those type of results for this team to have a chance to win 90 games this year. And listen, I kept going with my with my formula, and I said, listen, for 90 games, what exactly do the Mets have to do this year? They have to have a, essentially a flawless type of season, and it starts with Zach Wheeler. Making his 30 starts, being healthy like he is expected to be, winning, let's say, 13 games and pitching nearly 200 innings, pitching to a sub-3 RA. Bartolo Colon. I'm not too big on the records because I kind of spread it out over the course of 162-game season, but how about 29 starts, a 320 RA, and 189 innings? Jonathan Neese, you know about him and his injury and how everything's going to be okay. I think he's going to be all right. But Jonathan needs needs to make 25-plus starts. He needs to pitch well over 150 innings. And even if he misses a little time, he has to go out there and win. Uh, I think he's got to lead the Mets in wins this year. And I got him and Dylan G and Zach Wheeler all tied with 13. Bartolo Colon will win in 12. And, of course, Daisuke Matsuzaka, I got him winning 10 games. And he's got to do that. I think he's got to be the Mets' fifth starter. Um, Noah Syndergaard coming up, making his 15 starts, going 8-2 with a 190 ERA. And, of course, what about the bullpen? The bullpen, and I've said all along, the bullpen actually has a chance to be pretty good without any big names in it. And you know about Bobby Parnell. Bobby Parnell, can he pitch in 65 games? Can he get 45 saves? Can he pitch to a sub-2 ERA? His setup man, Vic Black, can he go out there and pitch to about a 2-4 ERA? Gonzalez Hermen, can he pitch 57 games and pitch to a 2-80 ERA? Jack Leathersitch. Can he come up and pitch to a 180 RA in 40 games? Rafael Montero, can he come up on the early side, pitch in 25 games in relief, and dominate and be an eighth-inning type of guy? Oh, what about all the other guys that are in the mix here? The Kyle Farnsworths, the John Lannans, the, the Jory's Familias. Can, can these guys go out there and make this a, a memorable bullpen? And, of course, if the Mets are going to win 90 games and if they're going to have any chance of doing it, what has to happen? Yeah, the big guy. Matt Harvey's got to come back. And, and you know, in my, in my little uh, dream scenario here, I got Harvey p- pitching in 10 games, starting five, but making the last four starts of the 2014 season and going, was it 4-0 and 
with 0.85 ERA, getting himself his 40 innings and leading the Mets into the postseason. Let's be honest, 90 wins is a dream scenario. It's not going to happen. Nobody in their right mind is going to accept that as being a demand of something that has to happen. And the unfortunate thing that may happen with it is that Terry Collins may lose his job this year. And I think going back to past seasons, the start of the season is very important. And remember, Terry got a, and the Mets got off to a little bit of a rough start last year. I thought played better ball in the second half. And I think they, they had overall one of their better development seasons that they've had since Sandy Alderson and Terry Collins have joined the New York Mets organization. That being said, the start to this season is very important. The fact that the Mets do need to win some of the games that they go up against when they have the stiff competition. They got a tough schedule coming up. They got the Nationals. They got the Braves. They got the Cincinnati Reds. They got the St. Louis Cardinals, the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. It's not like they have a real real easy stretch to start the season. They're going to have to go out there and they're going to have to play very good against very good ball clubs. And you know the Mets have the ability, I think, to compete with anybody. But I think the way spring training is set up, and you know, listen, it's a little normal about the way things have to happen. You have to put your team together. You have to get yourself an idea of what you think your team's going to look like. But I think it's very important for a team like the Mets, and maybe a little more important than it's been in past seasons, because they have to find their identity. They have to figure out exactly what they are. What are the New York Mets coming into this season? What kind of team is it? How is it going to be put together? And how are they going to be able to compete with the likes? of the Washington Nationals and the Atlanta Braves and the top teams in the league. They're going to have to be able to beat them, at least at some point. If these other teams are better than them, fine. But the Mets have to find a way to get themselves to where they're playing over 500 baseball after April. And if they do, then I think everything's going to be fine and you could continue with the development. But if not, the Mets may make a change at the helm. And Terry Collins, as much as I think he should be the manager, he should at the very least get the opportunity to see what this team looks like when they're any good. He may have to pay the price for Sandy Alderson's 90-win prediction in the front office meetings with Mets ownership. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take a quick break, and I'll be happy to welcome in my first guest of the program, and that'll be Ed Cranepool, the longtime Mets first baseman, the Mr. Met for the longest time, uh, the original 1962 Met who played his career throughout uh, the 60s and the 70s before retiring after the 1979 season, and a lot of different things we get to with that. Hopefully you guys enjoy this spot. But before that, we'll take a quick break and be right back after this. Are you searching for something different for your child's education? Consider Atlanta Christian School, where faith and quality education meet. Listen to what one of our students has to say about their experience at ACS. Atlanta Christian School is an amazing school. It has many different qualities that set it apart from public schools. It is an extremely safe environment where students care and look after each other. There is a Bible class where students learn about God and grow closer to Him. In Bible class, we do Chop Shop. It is where we learn to dissect God's words so we can hear his direction for our lives. They have service projects where we learn to serve our Lord and community. Atlanta Christian School is a wonderful place that changes the lives of the students that go there. Come learn about our new lower tuition rates at our open house every Wednesday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 391 Zion Road in Egg Harbor Township or enroll today. Visit us on the web at acseht.org or call 653-1199. Atlanta Christian School, where character, Christ, and community count. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And you know, we always see one or two 
accidents along the way. We wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop. Specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and body work, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today, 609-927-9454, and check out their website, www.redroseautobody.com. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Red Rose Body Shop, 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, 609-927-9454. Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist. 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com. Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, don't forget to check out the iPhone and mobile apps if you haven't already. Um, you can take us with you. Uh, of course, live programming we have really during the better part of the week uh, from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and I believe on Tuesday and Thursday as well, live programming on the network. And, of course, a lot of the podcasts and the late-night shows and stuff like that you can check out. But programming 24-7, a lot of great stuff going on with MTR Radio. But I'm going to get right into this interview that I played with former Mets first baseman Ed Cranepole. And, of course, Ed holds a distinct number of records that still exist today. David Wright just passed his hit record. And a guy who played for the Mets for 18 seasons and really is the model type of player that David Wright kind of strives for. May want to finish his career with the New York Mets, may have the opportunity to, but it's going to be tough for David to do, like I touched on in the first segment, if the team doesn't win. And the team does need to start to kind of have its own identity under David Wright, and it's not David Wright's fault completely. You need to have a team around you. You can't all do it by yourself. But, you know, Ed Cranepool was a guy that was a 1962 Met, and the only guy from the 1962 team, if I'm not mistaken, to be on the 1969 team that won a World Series. And Ed, of course, a great Met, a guy who played first base for a long time, retired after the 1979 season. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this spot with original 1962 Met and 1969 World Series champion, Ed Cranepool. Good afternoon, this is John Pielli. I'm here with 1969 World Series champion, Ed Cranepool. Ed, thanks for having a couple minutes today. From your perspective, being around the game for so long and obviously being retired for a while, uh, what are your thoughts about the game right now as it's played? Well, I think they tried to clean it up, and I think they've made some changes in the rules, which I think is certainly, uh, you know, should improve the game. Uh, I think the video replay, instant replay, is certainly that's been a long time coming, and, and uh, I look forward to it. But I think when it comes to uh, situations where maybe it's a uh, no-hitter or a uh, winning home run or 
can lose the game or the playoff you know, because of the misjudgment call. Um, certainly, uh, I'd like to take a look at it. The young fellow that lost his perfect game in the ninth inning, certainly if they would have replayed it, he would have had a perfect game. He's not even on baseball two years after the fact. So, you know, once you set records, you want to keep them. You don't want somebody to make a mistake. And that's all an umpire does on occasion. They write books for the time. But, you know, when they make a mistake, they can change it. There's nothing wrong with having an eye in the sky and somebody looking at it and pulling down and saying, hey, we made a mistake. Let's, let's reverse it and go on with the game. I tell you, you make some good points there, and obviously because of the you know things that have happened. You mentioned um, Armando Magalaraga's near perfect game, and you know obviously some calls in the playoffs that have been controversial over the years. Um, do you think that there, there's any credence to what people say about uh, instant replay possibly uh, delaying the game, making the games go on a little longer than they should? What do you have to say about that? Ed? Well, uh, I don't think it's going to extend the game, you know, that much longer. They're long enough as it is for the simple reason that pitches don't go so they can see that aspect of the game up. But uh, if you have an extra umpire and he's sitting up in the press box and he's watching the game on replay, by the time the manager gets out there and argues for 10 minutes, he certainly would have had a reverse call by the umpire up there because they look at it instantly. They have the replays on TV, so you could eliminate all those arguments, uh, you know, that go on forever and picking up the bases and throwing the hats and stuff like that. You know, it would put Billy Martin and those type of managers out of business. <laughs> That's funny you say that because uh, obviously there's going to be a lot less arguing because, you know, for the most part, the, the, the calls are going to be made right. And, yeah, you know, there's always, there's always a, a, a call that's not the, a team that's on the right side and the wrong side of the call. The team that's on the wrong side of the call is going to be upset. But, you know, when it's proven beyond a reasonable doubt, what are you going to do? If, if you're right and you're out, you're out. Or if it's a home run, it's a home run. But I think, you know, you take away all the mistakes that possibly are made because of the speed of the game. The game is such a fast game that these umpires, you have to give them credit for being able to react as fast as they do. And like I say, they write 99% of the time. And, uh, you know, it happens instantaneously and everything goes so fast. So you can get a closer look at it. There's nothing wrong with it. And then the best teams want to win. No, absolutely. Once again, John Pielli here with Ed Cranepool. Now, now, talk a little bit about your your uh, your your emergence into baseball. Of course, you were signed in 1962 by the expansion New York Mets, and you end up making your debut that season. Take us a little bit back in time and tell us what what you were going through and kind of recap that season for you. Well, it's so long ago, it's tough to recap too much of anything, so you're talking about the situation with 1962, here we are in 2014, uh, I'm out of the game longer than I played, obviously I retired in 1980, it's a lot of years ago, and, and uh, but it was great, it was a tremendous feeling, signing out of high school uh, when I was 17 in June of 62, and making the major leagues that same year, my opening night uh, in California, Colfax pitched a no-hitter and struck out 13 Mets, so, you know, I knew I was going to be here for a long, tough career, but certainly there's, there's fond memories that you always will carry. Uh, I think the difference in myself when I watch a game now is a lot of the stadiums that I, I played in are no longer uh, around. There's very few of those uh, still existing, 
Dodger Stadium. We have uh, Chicago. There's a couple, but most of the new stadiums, so I really don't get flashbacks because you don't recognize the stadiums where I'm not playing at. But years ago, when you played in those stadiums, you always had uh, a recall of something that would happen and put back good memories. Yeah, no question. I tell you, you might be biased by this answer, but uh, so I'll, I'll ask the question a little differently. You talk about all the different stadiums you played in. Outside of Shea Stadium, what was the one that stood out to you the most and you enjoyed playing in uh, as a visiting player? Well, I always like to play in Chicago. I enjoyed playing during the day. I think the fans were active. They were involved in the game. They, it was a tremendous baseball city. Uh, they came out to the ballpark during the week, uh, you know, to see day baseball and have 30,000 people rooting the Cubs on. And they, they gave you that incentive to go out there and play. And you always back the hotel at an early hour. You go out for dinner and have a good night. But uh, it, it makes it easier to play the game. I'm an early rider. I love to play the game. You can see the baseball a lot better in the daytime, and it's always competitive with the Cubs. Now, very true. Once again, John Fiala here with Ted Cranepool, longtime Mets first baseman. Now, you know, you talk a little bit about uh, you know your experience in, in 1969 because it, it it's it I've gotten a couple different perspectives from a, a couple different players. Obviously, you're talking about a team that struggled for a long period of time. You were one of the ones that were were there from you know its inaugural season. Um, obviously, a lot of things went right that season. What were your your best recollections of the 1969 World Series championship? Well, the thing that really came about was we, we put it all together by June, and we became a very good ball club the second half of the season after the All-Star break. You know, when you win a hard games during the course of the season, you know, you got to have a pretty good ball club. And we did, and we played well. The pitching came around. You had young pitchers, just like the Mets have right now. They're going into the season with a lot of question marks. Our guys were more than question marks. He just includes that we had a pitch the year before, but they put it all together, and they wound up to be a very consistent down the stretch, they were unhittable. And, uh, you know, that's the key to winning. Uh, good defense, good pitching, you're going to score some runs, and you put it all together. And we had a great leader in Gil Hodges, who took a ball club the year before, molded his way around pitching and defense, and, and, and created an atmosphere that was positive, as opposed to losing every year. And we did seven years in a row, we lost 100 games, and we turned around and won 100 games. So, you have to change the whole mindset of an organization. And that's, you know, when you lose too much, that's what's going to affect you. It's like, you know, you have some New York teams now playing that way. The Knicks, for instance, they're not as bad as they look, but, you know, when you start losing, losing is contagious and so is winning. So, you know, things start going spiraling on the downside and makes it tough to play. Now, I'll tell you, what really stands out is the fact that Gil, Gil Hodges was able to change that culture and make it more of a winning one, like you just said. What do you? What, what, what was the biggest key to it, though? Because it sounds like, you know, it sounds like, hey, you know, winning mentality, losing mentality. Obviously, nobody wants to lose. You know, the Mets teams of the, you know, the prior seven years that you were there uh, didn't want to go out there and lose 100 games. What do you think was the biggest key to make to have that type of mentality where you feel like you could go out there and compete with anybody? Well, you have to have a leader that uh, has a positive attitude and, and won't allow you to lose, uh, make mental mistakes, won't allow you to continue to do certain things. If, you, if you're not going to improve your play and not going to turn things around, you're not going to get a chance to play. And he wouldn't stand for it. He had one way to play the game with solid defense, good pitching, finally hitting, and, and doing the right things. You know, 
makes the fewer mental mistakes and is going to win. And, and that was something that was not in his uh, repertoire. And, you know, started in spring training. He set the tone in and kept it up all year. And he, he you know, kept a, a strong eye on exactly what was going on. He knew what was happening. You know, a lot of the managers today, they don't know what's happening. And they allow things to continue and spiral. And he wouldn't stand for it. He traded guy before now, once again, John Pialli here with Ed Greenpool. Of course, you had a lot of success with the Mets. You know, you're part of a 73 team that makes it to the World Series, and you stick around with the organization pretty long. Um, you know, towards the end of your career with, with the Mets, you know, you became more of a role player. Uh, tell us a little bit about what your transition was from being an everyday or at least a platoon type of player during the prime of your career to be kind of that, that guy that's just kind of filling in here and there. Well, that's a, that's a judgment call on management. Obviously, they make that call when I played. I played 17 years when I was still only 32, 33 at the time. And, and you know, they thought you played 100 years and you were over the hill and they make changes in management. They have their own decisions. They put you in situations where you might not like it, but you have no, no recourse back in those days. It wasn't free agency. You couldn't play it out. You had to either show up and do what you had to do to the best of your ability or or retire, and finally when you have enough of it, you retire, and I retired when I was 34. Um, and I still could have played, I, I still felt I could play, I still wanted to play, but watching a bad product like we had certainly wasn't fun, and, and uh, you know, at, at that time, and then you start losing your, your, your reason to go to the ballpark, you know, if you're not going to play and not going to enjoy yourself, you might as well get out. Now, very true. Now, you know, you, of course, you spent your whole career with the New York Mets, which is com common knowledge, but was there ever a time where you thought maybe you might have been better off playing for another organization after your time with the Mets? Like, let's say, had you been traded, which obviously you would have had no choice of, but, you know, was there, was there any time where you thought maybe you should have played for another organization? Well, whenever you're not playing, you always have those uh, thoughts about it. I mean, I should have played the last couple of years instead of watching some of the guys get brought in and to play and to pitch it on a bad ball club when you're a better hitter. And most of the guys out on the field certainly is not uh, conducive to, to a good environment. So, I mean, I would like to have gone somewhere at the end of my career, but you didn't have a choice. You couldn't pick and choose who you wanted to go to. I certainly would have enjoyed maybe pitch hitting for the Yankees or pitch hitting for the Dodgers. And they were competitive, you know, at the end, and then pinch-hitting in the ninth inning would have meant something with us, pinch-hitting in the ninth inning, you know, it was just another ball game, or, or you know, you're not going to win any ball games, there's nothing on the line, and it's never fun to do that type of a job, when it's a competitive spirit out there, you want to really pinch-hit, you know, so, you know, you lose the fun of the game, the game is fun when you're playing every day, and they know you're doing well, and it's easy to play the game, on a good team, it's a lot easier to play, and it gets tougher every year, the older you get when you have a bad ball club, and that's what you hope that the Mets turn it around right here, because you don't want to see a kid like David Wright lose his enthusiasm for playing, you know, losing gets old very quick. No, it really does, and I tell you, you know, you watch, you get this, you got the saw at least from afar after you retired in 1979, it took a little bit of time, of course, it wasn't really until about the 83 season going into 1984 that the Mets organization kind of turned it around. Obviously, it's kind of a different mix than what you saw when you played. Uh, you know, what was your perspective from outside? Were you happy to see this this organization finally get some success? You know, from the from the time you were there. Players. 
bands were great young players that brought up. They played great Gooden and Daryl Strawberry guys with tremendous potential. They were a fun loving grow group of young guys that put it all together and, and, and it was it was fun to watch them play. Uh, obviously you might not agree with some of their antics off the field, but certainly they performed well for a couple of years. Their careers were shortened, I believe, because of some of the things they did, but they still performed and they were an exciting team and uh, What's going to John Pialli here with that crane pull now? Going back a little bit because uh, you know I just want to take a little back you know back in time. I know you're talking about how long ago it was when you you first played for the Mets and you've been out of the game longer than you were in it. But uh, what, what what was your earliest recollection in baseball as far as memories? Uh, you know, did you grow up a Dodgers or a Giants fan or a Yankee fan? I was a Yankee fan growing up in the Bronx. I always moved to the Yankees, and of course, when you saw the playoffs in the World Series, back in those days, when I had a World Series, it was always the Yankees, the Dodgers, but I was from the Bronx. I was a Yankee fan. I loved them. I watched them play, and, and of course, you always had thoughts of what your life had played with them, but uh, I was very satisfied signing with the Mets. They gave me an opportunity, and I was involved in two World Series, so, you know, things worked out well for me. And obviously, if I would have joined a better ball club early on, we might have had more success in my individual career. No, absolutely. Now, were you uh, were you a Mickey Mantle fan? Was he kind of your favorite player growing up? Well, I was, and, and uh, you know, he was the guy that everybody followed. He was absolutely. an icon. And Willie Mays, I was fortunate enough to play with later on in his career. Join the Mets that became very friendly with them. So, you know, and of course, Stoop Snyder, so the three heroes in New York, I was able to play with and play against, and we had some fun together. And no question. Listen to that. I want to thank you for having some time. I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes. Best of luck to you, and, uh, you know, hopefully I can speak to you sometime soon. Thank you very much. I hope New York has a good season. Quick break. Be back after that. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. This is empty vlog. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay? Face empty vlog. Faces empty vlog. Faces empty vlog. Faces empty vlog. Faces empty vlog. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, and uh, of course, we are getting into the block section here, and one thing that I wanted to go over was something interesting that I, I found out, and every now and then, I've been lucky enough to get a little bit of inside information, some stuff that 
somebody is willing to tell me in confidence and I could share the information, but it's, you know, it's unprofessional to share their name associated with it. And this was a little information about uh, an experience with uh, a, a longtime Red Sox player. And of course we know about Ted Williams and Ted Williams didn't necessarily get along with the fans. He didn't necessarily get along with the media, but he was still a great player. And one thing that a lot of Ted Williams' teammates will tell him about uh, him being on the same field as him. And, yes, there were some times that it was a little bit tough to be in a sa- associated with a guy that was just on a level of his own. He respected the players, and he got along with the players, and he fraternized with the players of his own team. Now, from what you hear and what I've been told is Carl Yastrzemski didn't have that same reputation. Carl Yastrzemski was a guy, of course, played 22 years with the Red Sox, Hall of Famer, was the last Triple Crown winner in Major League Baseball until Miguel Cabrera did two years ago. Now, the player did not, of course, allow for his name to be shared and did not give me consent to name him associated with this. But according to this player, Yastrzemski was not necessarily the best team guy and got along with very few Red Sox teammates. He had the reputation of being a loner and did not really personalize himself with many of the other Boston players. In fact, April 20th, 2012, the Red Sox honored the history of their illustrious Fenway Park with the ballpark's 100-year anniversary. Yastrzemski, of course, was invited to attend the festivities and did so. But, according to this player, Yastrzemski entered the stadium from a completely different interest than any of the other players and refused to interact with any of the Boston Red Sox players that were there. This, of course, was not visible from any of the media or the fans, and it was, but it was very evident for the generations of players that came to the event. They saw that it was essentially everybody there, and Carl Yastrzemski was by himself. Um, it wasn't that Yastrzemski thought he was better than anyone else, the source says, but while the older players were together sharing stories and catching up, Carl did not want anything to do with interacting with them. And that was the exact way he was in a locker room, according to this unnamed player. And it was the way he was perceived throughout his career in Boston. He was not liked by his teammates, though you could, you could say that Yastrzemski equally did not like his teammates. In fact, according to this player, the only player that was chummy with Yaz throughout his career in Boston was right-hand pitcher Dave Moorhead, who played with the Red Sox and pitched for the Red Sox from 63 to 68. During the 1964 a little bit of issue, there's a little bit of undermining going on. Johnny Pesky was the manager, and of course the legendary player Pesky was. Uh, the Red Sox icon, the guy who spent a long time playing with the Red Sox, is always going to be remembered in Boston lore, and of course uh, passed away a couple years ago. But uh, he was a manager that some of the players didn't necessarily like his bravado. He was the guy that wanted to give it all at every time and you know you lose a game you know you want he wants you to take it home with you he wants you to think oh my god what could have happened that was so different and the the undermining was going on and uh, the unfortunate thing with pesky and his mentality he was the rah-rah type he took the losses to heart like i just said uh many players understood that he can't win every game and were bothered by the way that pesky kind of reacted after a loss and Carl Yastrzemski was never one who spoke up in front of his but did uh, apparently go behind uh, Johnny Pesky's back and complain to management and was apparently the reason that Johnny Pesky got fired. And Billy Herman ended up taking over the team for the last two games in 1964, managing 65 and all but 16 games in the 1966 season. You know about the team getting better and having to turn around in 67 under Dick Williams, but Listen, let's be honest. Carl Yastrzemski may not have been the nicest guy, may not have been the best teammate, 
but he was an all-time great player in the history of the Boston Red Sox franchise. The Hall of Famer, three-time batting champion, has his place in MLB history. The question I pose, if this was the case in the Boston Red Sox clubhouse and locker room, did the dissension among players, was it as big of a deal as this unnamed player said it was? And if it was, did it have anything to do with the fact that the Red Sox, for the most part in Yastrzemski's career, struggled? They didn't have a lot of success. They did win pennants in 1967 and 1975. But for the most part, they struggled with Yastrzemski as their premier and ultimate leader. And if Yastrzemski wasn't like this or they had a different player that had that different type of mentality, was more likable among the players, didn't think he was a guy that just shouldn't fraternize with his teammates at all. If that was the case, could the Red Sox have been a better team? Could they have maybe challenged for the division title a little more often than they did? They had some rough seasons. They also had some seasons that they competed with the New York Yankees right down to the wire. There's no question about it. But is this a team that could have been a little bit better if Carl Yastrzemski had maybe carried himself a little differently? Or maybe there was another star, a guy who was not Yastrzemski, that chose to interact with his teammates a little better and make him make the teammates feel like he is part of the group of course feel free to check out that article as well as all the other ones that i've written on johnpielli.com and of course we've gotten into the, the the countdown team previews which i'm hoping to touch on a little bit in the second hour and if i don't we'll get into it next week obviously 30 teams to go 30 days or less to go in the major league season when we get started at the end of march in the early may but i haven't talked about this a while but they're getting free agents and we talked last year about kyle loesch maybe lingering into the season and it almost did but there's a chance you got three pretty high profile free agents out there and Steven Drew and Kendrys Morales and Irvin Santana and you figure the pitcher will probably be signed similar to the way you thought with Loesch last year you think about teams looking to make sure they have that extra starter let's be honest Irvin Santana is a better pitcher at this point of his career than Kyle Loesch was at that point of he was last season so I think Santana will end up signing with somebody is he going to sign with Arizona the Chicago White Sox, the Baltimore Orioles, whatever. I think there's going to be enough teams that are going to be in it that is still pretty much up in the air where he's going to end up signing with. But I would predict that Irvin Santana will end up signing with a major league team before the season starts. I can't say the same thing about the other two major free agents. Steven Drew, Kendrys Morales. I think Kendrys Morales is almost a lock to end up starting this season, not with a team. I think he may still be a free agent when the season starts. I think it's likely that he could end up signing with a team in June when there's draft pick compensation not tied to him. And I think he's a guy that's limited in what a ball club. And it's nothing to take anything away. He could hit some home runs. He could certainly DH. He might be able to play even a little bit of first base for you. But in regards to what teams are looking to do, a guy like Kendrys Morales should not be tied to a draft pick compensation. You shouldn't lose a draft pick for signing Kendrys Morales. It just doesn't make any sense. And that's going to end up costing him. The other guy, Stephen Drew, I actually think he's going to sign. Now, he is meant to sign with the New York Mets because they have the biggest need. And the more time that goes by, like I kind of touched to at the beginning of the program, I don't think that the Mets are going to go out there and give him that second year. They are fine going with Ruben Tata, even if he does suck. I don't think they care about that. 
it's kind of weird that a general manager will go out there and make a, a, a declaration to the ownership that he expects the team to win 90 games but isn't going to have a major league shortstop going into the season. I would like to see the Mets sign Drew, not because I'm a fan of the New York Mets, but because I think in regards to all teams in Major League Baseball, and I'm not being biased by this, I know there's people that are not Mets fans that will agree with what I'm saying. I think he is the best fit, and the Mets have the biggest need in regards to a shortstop. But the fact that the shortstop is a legitimate position that a lot of teams are looking for help in, you know, maybe not necessarily on a starter level, and that's what has hurt Stephen Drew and Scott Boris this offseason. But I think you look at the Toronto Blue Jays. You look at, like you said, about the New York Mets. You look at some other teams that may be able to use Drew in a certain way. The Boston Red Sox didn't necessarily close the door on signing Stephen Drew. I think as the season gets close and approaches, then maybe they start to get involved a little bit more. Maybe another one-year contract. Maybe he wants to take a one-year deal with the Boston Red Sox as opposed to the New York Mets. But I think Drew is a guy that will end up signing and will end up being part of a major league team in spring training. It's a shame to see him down in Florida at Scott Boris camp, you know, not working out with an organization because he can't be part of one. But here's a guy that certainly came off of a season last year that he proved that he is a major league shortstop. Uh, he's been one, obviously, before his injury, and I think last year was a very good season for him in proving that he was at a level that he should have been signed. And you look at it, and it is you know March the 8th, and this is a guy that still doesn't have himself a contract. And listen, I think he, that, you know there's a chance that he could go into the season not being signed, but I think there's a bigger chance that Morales will. And I told you why I think Henry Morales will not be signed. It's it's because the teams in the American League that are looking for a DH, there, there aren't too many that need to make that move. I mean, look, you obviously know about David Ortiz in Boston. You know about the Yankees, how they're going to shuffle their DH in and out. Maybe a Travis Hafner type a guy on a, you know the Yankees can bring in on a minor league contract to just kind of be part of the mix is a possibility, but they're not going to sign Morales to be their full-time DH. I mean, the Seattle Mariners are a possibility because he's not tied to any draft pick compensation. I talked about the Houston Astros, but why would the Houston Astros go out there and sign themselves an everyday DH? I think they have Chris Carter. Chris Carter is a guy that will probably get more time as a designated hitter this season, and I did the previews with them. Hopefully we get a chance to get into this in the second hour, but Kendrys Morales is, is, is almost a lock right now to not be on a major league team to start the season. And I know you went back a couple of years ago. If you remember guys like Vladimir Guerrero, Johnny Damon, and Hideki Matsui, Vladimir Guerrero never played in a game again. Jermaine Dye, years before that, never played in a major league game again after not taking a contract before the season starts. Now there's some stuff going on where I think you really have to get into the root of the problem, and it's obviously the teams valuing their, their draft picks as much as they have, and a new collective bargaining agreement, the way that it's saying, hey, teams can offer their free agents salary arbitration or, or what is called the qualifying offer. And these players are going to start to realize now, after what has happened this year with Morales and with Drew, that maybe that one-year deal for $14.1 million is is probably not too bad to take. And now that the teams themselves, they pull the offer off the table once it's been refused. And maybe they made the offer with the hopes and the expectation that the team will actually go out there and do it. Maybe these players decide to take the qualifying offer. But hopefully you guys enjoyed the first hour of this program. Ed Cranepool, 
great job, great getting in some interesting stuff. Second hour of the program, I'm going to speak with a couple former major league outfielders, a guy that's still uh, attempting to get back into the major leagues, and his name is Corey Aldridge, played for the Braves in 2001 and the Angels in 2000, in between before and after, has been in, in independent ball, has been in uh, minor leagues, is trying to get a job in Japan this year, so hopefully you guys enjoy the spot in the second hour. I'm also going to speak with former major league pitcher Doug Bockler, who is now involved with the Arizona Diamondbacks. He's a pitching coach with the Arizona organization. Thanks for the first hour. I'll be back with you in five minutes. JohnPielli.com. Rock over London, rock on Chicago. American Airlines, we mean business in Chicago. 